Our lesson of the day is from Numbers chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a tribute of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and loose the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering, the tribute of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you and you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and a solemn statement among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh fail and your, your wound swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your wound swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the tribute offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And there ends our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us, that You have shown us the way of salvation, that even in the, uh, the sacrifices and rituals of the Old Covenant, You have foreshadowed the salvation that You were to bring to pass in Christ Jesus. We thank You. Uh, that Your Spirit has inspired and preserved these words for us and given them to us for our instruction. Make us attentive to Your Word this day, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in continuing my series on the book of Malachi... I'm going to preach on something besides Malachi, uh, the logical thing to do, of course. 
But in order to really understand the book of Malachi, we have to understand several important rites and rituals that form the basis of Malachi's prophecy. As we've seen thus far in Malachi, Malachi is imminently concerned with God's gracious covenant with Israel, who he has restored from exile. Furthermore, Malachi is directed, addressed specifically to the priests primarily of Israel. And so it should be no surprise that in Malachi's prophecy, he has a lot to say about priestly things. If he is confronting the priests about their sin, it's going to follow that many of the sins that Malachi is confronting have to do with worship, with rituals, with sacrifice, with how those rituals and sacrifice and how that worship flows out into the culture and life of the people at large. The, the main focus of the book of Malachi, sort of this unifying theme that we see throughout, has to do with the tribute offering, or as some English translations say, the grain or cereal offering of Leviticus 2. This particular offering is mentioned seven times in Malachi's 55 verses, but furthermore, it provides the, the framework uh, there are many more allusions to the tribute offering besides just the seven explicit mentions. And so today I'm uh, going to attempt to survey uh, the tribute offering and its related rituals, including this uh, strange thing we just read from Numbers 5, the inspection of jealousy. And I'm going to attempt to provide some background uh, that will inform our understanding of the book of Malachi uh, and also show us some very relevant applications to our own lives and to our own worship. We have to remember in all of this that the Bible is not a random collection of fictional fables or superstitious myths. All the various parts of God's Word harmonize and build upon each other to tell the same unfolding story of God's covenant and salvation as His plan moves toward its goal in the finished work of Christ and the ongoing life of the church in the world. So, if we're going to understand the full significance of Malachi, we have to go back to Leviticus. We have to go back to Exodus. We have to go back to Numbers. We have to understand uh, the allusions uh, and the backstory uh, to what's going on in Malachi, specifically with this tribute offering. So let's let's talk about Leviticus two, this tribute offering uh, that was commanded to be brought. My short uh, summary definition of the tribute offering is that it's a it's a tribute gift to memorialize the covenant before God, to call on God to act in accordance with His covenant, and to prepare the way for communion with God. That's the essence of what the memorial tribute is all about. If you uh, recall from Leviticus 2, 
It's a very simple uh, offering. It's a very simple preparation. The worshiper would prepare a gift of flour, of wheat. Not, not the finest flour, even though some English translations say fine flour. It's really the coarser particles that are left after the fine flour is sifted out. It's called semolina. If you go home and pull a box of pasta off of your shelf and look at the ingredients, the first ingredient will say semolina. This is what the grain offering, the tribute offering, was to be made of. It was not pasta, no. It was the, the coarser part of the wheat uh, that was to be unleavened, no leaven. It was to be added, salt was to be added to it. Uh, and then it could be offered in several different ways. It could be offered uncooked, or it could be baked as a cake, it could be toasted on a griddle, or it could be uh, cooked in a pan, maybe the precursor to pancakes. Uh, and so the different modes of preparation uh, require different ingredients. But the main ingredients are salt, oil, and in many cases, frankincense, a very uh, expensive uh, spice. If you read later on uh, about the tribute offering, wine later on becomes associated with the offering of this bread, this grain uh, offering. And that, is, that, that occurs when Israel enters into the land, they have access to the grapes, and that, that uh, foreshadows the maturity of the maturation of the people and the development of this bread offering into a grain and wine offering should uh, should tell you a little bit about where this is all headed. Um, but the wine was added later when they were resting in the land. So the worshiper would prepare this uh, tribute offering. He would draw near with his gift. The priest would take a handful a fistful, a full fistful of the gift. Whether it was, If it was cooked, he would break it up into pieces and he'd grab a handful of the crumbs. If it wasn't cooked, he'd just scoop out a big uh, portion of the, uh, of the semolina, the wheat. And he would then take that handful and he would put it on the altar and he would turn it into smoke and he would burn it as a fragrant aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, to memorialize the covenant, to call on God, to remember His covenant. The gift is described as fire food, the part that was offered on the altar. But the word for fire is the exact, is the almost the identical word to the word for bride. And so, uh, Dr. Jordan has suggested, and I think uh, rightfully so, that. This uh, fire food is actually uh, bridal food. It has a, a marital connotation to it that this food is being offered up to God as a part of His covenant by His bride uh, as a sweet-smelling aroma for the Lord. And so the, uh, the remainder of the gift uh, that was not burnt was given to the priest as most holy food. And this is where... Uh, the priests, not, not anybody else, just the priests, were able to, uh, to get their food. They got most of their food from the offerings of the people that were offered morning and evening uh, and throughout the day 
uh, in the in the sanctuary. Now, let's notice a few of the important aspects in terms of the symbolism of this offering. The tribute offering occurs in Leviticus two. Right before it, in Leviticus one, is a description of a different offering, an animal offering called the Ascension Offering, or a whole burnt offering, because the whole thing was was burned on the altar. And then right after it, in Leviticus 3, comes the Peace Offering, uh, or the Communion Meal. And so the Tribute Offering performs this, it's this bridge, it's this link between the Ascension of the worshiper, represented by the animal ascending into God's presence, and the Communion of the worshiper with God, in a meal. It was always, the tribute offering was always offered after the ascension offering. You could not offer your gifts to God without prior, without previously having offered a blood sacrifice to cover your sins. In fact, the word for worshiper changes from Leviticus 1 to Leviticus 2. In Leviticus 1, the worshiper is called Adam, dirt man, right? In Leviticus 2, the worshiper is called a soul. It's as if the, the dirt man has been glorified. He's been cut, his sins have been covered. He's ascended into God's presence. And now he offers this tribute as dirt plus spirit. He's now a soul. Just as Adam was made a living soul by God taking dirt and adding his spirit to it. Notice too the ingredients of this tribute offering. All the ingredients in the tribute offering required the work of a man of a man's hands. It required cultivation. It required human work. You couldn't offer ground wheat without having first planted the wheat and tended the wheat and uh, harvesting the wheat and grinding and milling and sifting uh, the wheat. You couldn't offer oil without having somehow procured olives and, and crushed them and, and made oil, right? You couldn't offer frankincense without having gone to great lengths to obtain this very expensive spice uh, and the mixture of, of it. You couldn't have... Uh, you have to harvest salt and it has to be uh, purified. That's why no leaven was allowed and no honey was allowed to be offered because all the ingredients uh, seem to require the work uh, and cultivation of the worshiper. So in, in many ways, you're offering something that has been cultivated and glorified. Uh, you're offering yourself and the work of your hands. The oil represents the Spirit's presence, the, the covenant bond of the Spirit. The frankincense seems to represent uh, uh, prayer and, and the fellowship that the worshiper would have with God through prayer. And the salt is always associated with God's covenant. Salt is uh, its like crystallized fire um, that will burn things. It will burn the ground. It will melt ice. Uh, this salt, this crystallized fire uh, seems to speak of God's covenant of his refining fire and his jealousy and his covenant. Uh, and so the memorial portion that was offered on the altar uh, was a way of invoking God's covenant promises, calling on God to remember his covenant 
and to act accordingly. But remember that the tribute offering doesn't stand by itself. As we've already seen, the tribute offering is the second part in this sacrificial sequence uh, that was usually performed as one continuous sequence. All the sacrifices, all these rituals work together to tell the story of salvation and to foreshadow uh, the work of Christ who fulfills these sacrifices. And so we can say in a sense that the Old Covenant believers were enveloped in to the story of God's salvation as they performed the various sacrifices and offerings. And so if we think back to the the story of salvation uh, in the exodus from Egypt, we can see how that story, that central act of salvation in Israel's history is in many ways reenacted symbolically in the various sacrifices. So let's try, see if you can uh, follow along as I try to make a few links between the Exodus story and the symbolism of these Levitical sacrifices. Consider the narrative flow of the Exodus from Egypt. What, what happens at the Passover? In the Passover, an unblemished male lamb was sacrificed. And what, what, what happened to its blood? The blood was smeared on the doors, the doorpost of the home to provide covering for the family. Following the Passover, God's people are separated from Egypt. They go out to Sinai to meet with God. God descends in fire and smoke on Sinai. Moses, the head of Israel, ascends up to, uh, to Sinai to meet with God. And what does he come back down with? He comes back down with the Word of God to prepare the people, to cleanse the people, to meet with God. And then, once the people are cleansed and prepared and ready to meet with God, the 70 elders representing the whole nation ascend back up Sinai into God's presence. And there with God on the mountain, they eat a meal. Let's think back and and compare that to the ascension offering. The ascension offering required that an unblemished male from the flock be killed at the doorway, the entrance of the tabernacle, and its blood be thrown against the altar. The altar was sort of the doorway in to the sanctuary. Once the worshiper had been covered with the blood, symbolically, the animal would be separated. from Its legs and its different parts would be separated. And only the head would be burned and ascend up to God with the fat. And then, after that had been done, and the legs and the rest of the body had been washed with water, they too would be sent up to God on the altar as smoke into the glory cloud of God's presence. So you see that the Passover and Moses' actions at Sinai closely follow the parallel with the ascension offering. Now think back to the story in Exodus. After Moses and the elders went up and and met God there on the mountain and ate a peace offering, uh, communion meal in God's presence, Moses was called 
up to the mountain to meet with God. He met with God there on the mountain for 40 days. And what were the instructions that Moses got? While he was there, he received the tablets of the Ten Commandments, but he also was given instructions for constructing the tabernacle and all the furnishings in it so that God could come and meet with His people. And what was the key instruction? How were they going to find all the materials to build this house where God would meet in fellowship with His people? Where would they find all this gold and silver and all these animal skins in the middle of nowhere? Well, they had plundered Egypt. The, by the time all the plagues were over, the Egyptians were basically paying them to leave. Here, take all of our gold, take all of our silver, take everything you want and leave. Just get out of here. Go. And so God let the people plunder Egypt and they walked out into the middle of nowhere, one of the wealthiest ragtag, you know, they were like the Beverly Hillbillies uh, of the ancient world. They, they were nobody. They had nothing. And they were absolutely loaded with all this uh, gold and, and precious uh, metals and everything. And, Mo- and God tells Moses, you're to build this meeting place where I will come and dwell among my people with the contributions from the hearts of the people. So whoever is moved in their heart to give uh, to, the, to the work of the sanctuary, they should give. They should give their gold and silver and anything they have Give it to Moses and he'll oversee the construction of the tabernacle and the worship of God. Think about that in relation to what we just observed with the tribute offering. The worshiper in Leviticus 2, as we've already seen, the worshiper entered God's presence after the ascension offering, after the blood sacrifice. They were then able to offer their tribute to God. After God had redeemed His people, had provided the Passover lamb, they were then able to take the spoils of Egypt and offer it to the Lord. The tribute offering was a presentation of the work of the hands of the the worshiper. The, The contributions were from the heart. They represented the worshiper before God. And in the tribute offering, the priest would offer part of this uh, as an offering to God to memorialize the covenant and the rest of the tribute would be food for the priest to support the worship and work of God's sanctuary. And all of the things in the tribute offering prepared the way for the communion meal where the worshiper would feast with God in His presence. And so, the, the building of the tabernacle is the foundation for the tribute offering in many ways. Unfortunately, though, the Exodus story uh, also records the disobedience of Israel against the very God who had just delivered them from Egypt. Ironically, this is the deep uh, very tragic irony of uh, the, the incident with the golden calf. The people were down below the mountain worshiping a, a golden calf who Aaron told them had delivered them from Egypt. At the very moment that Moses is up on the mountain getting instructions for setting up a tabernacle 
where the people will worship the one true God. This is the ultimate perversion of the tribute offering. The incident with the golden calf. Because the the gold and the silver and the works of their hands and the contributions of their heart that the people were supposed to be giving to construct the tabernacle and provide for a place to meet with God and for God to dwell among them was being used to worship a dumb idol. Being used uh, to commit idolatry of the worst sort. And so, the incident with the golden calf, this perversion of the tribute offering, also later becomes becomes the paradigmatic sin uh, of idolatry. So later on, when idolatry crops up in the nation of Israel, it's compared to the golden calf. This is one of the fundamental sins uh, in the rest of Scripture. And there are some important uh, connections with the golden calf and this inspection of jealousy that we read about in Numbers 5. Notice just a few, and and, um, uh, Dr. Jordan has written extensively on this connection. If you're interested, I recommend his his work on this. I don't have time to to trace out all of the, the details, but notice a few very obvious links between the the incident with the golden calf, how that is a perversion of the tribute offering and idolatry, and this inspection of jealousy in Numbers 5, where a form, a uh, sort of inglorious form of the tribute offering is used to inspect a, a wife who is either suspected or accused of infidelity. Israel's infidelity to God at Sinai becomes the basis for this test of infidelity uh, for uh, a wife. So at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, Aaron is said to have let the people loose. He let them loose. They broke away from Moses' leadership. They broke away from God. Uh, they came out from underneath their authority. Aaron let the people loose at the holy mountain. Aaron is said to have presided over false ascension offerings and false peace offerings. This is a complete perversion uh, of the sacrificial system that is anticipated in Leviticus. But this is the most ironic part. This is the worst part. That the people present the contributions of their heart and the work of their hands to idolatry instead of to the worship of the God who had saved them. And so instead of constructing a house where God would come and meet with them and bless them, they provoked God to jealousy by offering the works of their hands as defiled offerings to idolatry. And so God's jealousy is aroused and His wrath burns against the people. Notice, too, what Moses does in response. Moses had been up on the mountain. God tells him, oh, by the way, you may want to go down and check on the people. It's getting pretty bad down there. Moses goes down. He does not know for sure who who had been participating in the sin of idolatry. 
So not knowing for sure who was guilty, Moses initiates what seems to be the foreshadowing of this inspection of jealousy that we see spelled out in Numbers 5. Moses, uh, he burns or he smelts the golden calf in the fire. Uh, He uh, grinds it into fine dust. He puts it in water and he makes the people drink the water. In the inspection of jealousy, the priest will take dust from the floor of the tabernacle, put it in the water, and then put he'll write the words of the curse on a scroll, he'll erase it in the water, he'll wipe it off in the water, and then this, the, uh, the bride will drink that. And God will be the one to execute judgment. The husband is... Uh, her, the head of the woman in Numbers 5 is said to be loosened. She's uncovered from the authority of her husband and put under the judgment of God as the husband relinquishes his right to make accusation or to carry out judgment. And so God is the one who judges either to vindicate her from false accusations or to judge her for unfaithfulness. Well, the people... Uh, Many of the people had been unfaithful. And so Moses, I don't know, this is just a guess, but it could be that the water with the golden calf in it would somehow distinguish between those who had worshipped the golden calf and those who had not. Because then the Lord sent a plague on the people uh, and killed um, a number of the people who who had participated in the idolatry. The, the ins- again, the, the parallels with the inspection of jealousy are, are certainly there. Um, we've already covered some of them. Um, but notice that with the tribute offering in the inspection of jealousy, there are a few important ingredients left out. This is a stripped down, inglorious, uh, not, not, uh, doesn't have the oil it uh, doesn't have the frankincense. It, it doesn't have any of the things that speak of covenant fellowship and covenant intimacy like the frankincense and the oil would in the normal tribute offering. And so uh, there's a, a judgment that would come uh, on, on the woman, whether to uh, a judgment in her bowels, in her womb, uh, Again, this is traced out. You can see this in other places in Scripture. Uh, I want to I want to close with a few um, applications, uh, observations on how all of this is really, believe it or not, is really really important to our worship and to the Book of Malachi. Think about, think about the book of Malachi as we read today from chapter 1 and as we'll see throughout the book. This is why Malachi, Malachi is doing some sort of inspection uh, on the nation, on the priest. God's jealousy, has they have provoked God to anger. God is jealous for His covenant. Uh, he is jealous for the, the worship of His people. And so he sends Malachi as his messenger uh, to confront the priest, to confront the nation for offering defiled sacrifices, for withholding God's tithe, for divorcing their wives and marrying pagans, 
But the worst part about it is that they're doing all of this while going through the motions of worshiping God. They're offering the right sacrifices, but they're doing it with the wrong attitude. Or they're, they're offering, they're doing the procedure the right way, but they're, the animal is blemished. Something like this. Because the tribute offering invokes God's covenant and calls on God to come and execute His covenant promises, hypocritical worship is obviously a life-threatening sin. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 5. If you bring your gift to the altar, go and reconcile with your brother first. Why? It's a sin, obviously, Jesus tells us. It's a grave sin to insult or be angry with your brother. But it's far worse to offend your brother and then come present yourself before God without first reconciling and repenting. If you come to offer yourself and the works of your hands to God and ask Him to come and to invoke His covenant, if you're doing that, and you have unresolved sin, God's going to come, yes, but it's going to be in judgment. It's going to be in punishment, not blessing. This too sheds a lot of light on 1 Corinthians 11 and what Paul says about the way the Corinthians were observing the Lord's Supper. The very uh, They were doing the right ritual but they were doing it in such a way that actually undermined the very purpose of the ritual. They were offering, they were memorializing the death of Christ by bringing bread and wine and and having a communion meal together with God, but they were divided amongst themselves. The, The rich were looking down their noses at the poor. They were separated. They were divided. They were factions within the church. And so Paul says, that's why many of you are sick and have fallen asleep. Because they were invoking God's covenant while in sin, and God came not in blessing, but in wrath. And so the primary way uh, that the church... See, we have to recall, of course, that all of the Levitical sacrifices, all of the Old Covenant rites and rituals are foreshadowing the work of Christ and are fulfilled once and for all, so to speak, in Christ. But because the church is the body of Christ, all these these sacrifices and all these rituals find some sort of ongoing transformed fulfillment in the worship and life of the church today. And so the church, we don't bring our pasta, we don't bring our tribute offerings of bread or grain to God to be offered up in fire. We don't bring an animal with us. None of you brought your unblemished male with you this morning to offer a blood sacrifice to God. But we bring our tribute to God in our tithes and our offering. We offer ourselves and the work of our hands before God to support the worship and work of the church in the the world. 
uh, by giving of ourselves. And that's why uh, when our ushers, when our deacons bring forward the offering to present it, to dedicate it to God, they also bring forward the bread and the wine with the offering. Because we are presenting bread and wine as cultivated gifts to God, which then He gives back to us and we share together with Him in a communion meal. This is why Jesus says, break the bread, drink the wine, and do this as my memorial. This is how we memorialize the covenant before God. And so, thinking back to the tribute offering, we have to be very careful about hypocritical worship. We have to be very uh, we have to guard ourselves against uh, going through the motions uh, without bringing a, a pure heart of humility and thanksgiving, without bringing sacrifices to God that are worthy of Him. We can't, ex- we can't expect God to accept us and the work of our hands if we have rejected Him as our covenant Lord. If we are in rebellion against God, we are putting ourselves in grave danger if we come before Him to offer ourselves as living sacrifices uh, in His presence. Because if we invoke God's covenant in a way that violates God's covenant, the Lord's judgment will be bitter and severe. But the opposite is also true. And this is the good news. This is the Gospel foreshadowed in the tribute offering. The tribute offering teaches us that the work of our hands, that we and the work of our hands are acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Just as the tribute offering was to be offered after the ascension, after the blood sacrifice, we too are able to come and worship God. We are cleansed of our sins when we confess our sins and receive the forgiveness of Christ. And then we are able to offer ourselves, to ascend into God's presence where we bring the work of our hands and offer it to God to build up His church and His promote His worship throughout the world. So when you go throughout your jobs, when you go throughout your callings in your various vocations in the world, when you go out into the world and, and work and serve and earn money that you then return uh, as tithes, when you pray for one another, when you show hospitality, when you give encouragement, when you exercise the gifts that the Spirit has given you in any way, you can be confident that that work is acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. That that work, that changing the diapers of your children, that uh, going to the grocery store and preparing a meal uh, for someone is, is valuable in God's sight and is accepted on the basis of Christ's sacrifice and is being used to build up God's church and to further His worship among the nations. And so, if we, in union with Christ, and empowered by the Spirit, approach God and present ourselves and present the work of our hands 
with humility, with thanksgiving, we can confidently expect God's promised blessing. That He will come. He will meet with us. He will commune with us. He will act in accordance with His covenant now and even at the last day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.